Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. This is another of our extra COVID-19 episodes. The sound quality won't be as good as our uh, regular ones, but the ideas will be coming fast and furious. Today's guest is Simon Dedeo, an assistant professor in social and decision sciences at Carnegie Mellon University and on the external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. He was also, by the way, the very first guest on the Jim Rutt Show. So if you wanna go back and see episode one, that was Simon. We had a great, uh, great conversation. Uh, the reason I invited Simon onto the show for one of these short extra episodes is that he wrote a little paper, uh, one of the Santa Fe Institute transmission uh, series of short papers about COVID-19. It was titled, Getting the Quarantined Endgame Right Means Thinking About How to Change Thinking Itself. Simon, say some more. <laughs> Hi, Jim. It's uh, uh, good to be back on with you just for this uh, short little chat we're having today. This was uh, a piece that came to me in part because I was talking to an old friend of mine, Michael Chan, who uh, lives in Hong Kong. And he was telling me about how they were handling or had handled the SARS epidemic in the past. And one of the things that struck me is that, okay, you know, at first you quarantine, absolutely. You know, you, you wait for this thing to stop spreading so that your risk is maybe going down a little bit, you're staying out of, the, out, of the, out of the wind. But eventually you have to get back into real life. And uh, in order to do that, you have to figure out who you're gonna spend time with. You have to figure out um, you know, who are your kids gonna go on play dates with. You have to figure out what kind of risks you're willing to take. And uh, when you do that, you're gonna have to use a set of heuristics about you know, your sense of risk, but then also the sense you have of the people you're thinking about spending time with, what's their sense of risk? How uh, cautious have they been? How careful are they? Uh, how well do they watch their kids? Are their kids as risky as, as they, you know, as you fear, that kind of thing. So it started me thinking that we're gonna have the same problem here. The world has changed, at least for now. And you know, we're asking ourselves questions that would have been, um, well, at the very least, Jim, I think really offensive to ask uh, you know, a month ago. Um, the idea that you wouldn't spend time with somebody because you were afraid they'd have picked up some horrible disease and it was gonna kill you, that just wasn't on our radar. Uh, now it is. And uh, so I was trying to figure out, okay, what, what kinds of social norms arise around risk management for disease. And that's a little bit more than, you know, what's the uh, epidemiologically best practiced way of handling your social life? Because you also, when you're making these decisions about who to spend time with, you also have to make your excuses, right? So if you judge someone to be high risk uh, and you don't wanna spend time with them, uh, but you're otherwise, let's say, socially connected to them, uh, what kind of excuse do you give, right? How do you explain yourself uh, to others when you're 
making the kinds of decisions that in some sense we've never been able to, or we've never had to make before, at least in our living memory. Yep. That's a, a very good question. You know, and, uh, and the other thing that, you know, that kind of plays into this, one of the biggest takeaways I've personally had from this experience is the astounding cognitive diversity of people who I, I would have thought at a high level, at least were fairly similar, you know, people about my age, you know, about, similar levels of education, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them were still going out to dinner a week ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, others of us locked down, you know, three and a half weeks ago. Uh, some people, you know, are still not taking it all that seriously. Some of, some of the rest of us are, you know, every time we go out, we have masks and gloves and raincoats on. And the, the uh, spectrum is quite wide, right? And that's a big aha for me. We were all presented with the same evidence. Uh, you know, I've argued on some of these extra uh, shows before that uh, there's probably uh, a distinction to, between people who know how to think exponentially and those that don't. But there's <laughs> other things, too. There's, you know, the big five uh, personality models. Uh, mm. uh, there's probably, you know, people who are more, you know, risk takers. I'm known to be a high risk taker, but nonetheless, I've uh, reacted very quickly, and I believe strongly to this. Uh, and the other one I've noticed, interestingly, has to do with our infosphere that those who I would say are on the political right uh, were, er, were late uh, to get it, even if they were smart enough and educated enough to have the cognitive tools to get it. Because for a while, the uh, you know, transmitter in chief on that side was not taking it seriously. So that was kind of interesting how people became, uh, their views of a factual situation became entrained by the mutterings of a, uh, uh, shall we say, less than sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> it's interesting, Jim. I mean, there's, the, you're, you're bringing up some really great questions here. I mean, just on the, on the overall point of, you know, who, who was seeing this coming, who was reacting in ways that, you know, looking back a year from now, we'll say were the right ways to do it. You know, part of this was, uh, I think, down to the capacity of the imagination. Uh, people who were willing not just to imagine, but I think also to act on their imaginations were the ones who were, I think, uh, more cautious ahead of time. They were the Great. people like, we'll look back and we'll say, yeah. Um, one of the things that's funny, of course, Jim, is that, you know, imagination is not always a blessing, right? It could also be a curse. Um, one of the things that I noticed, and this is just completely informally, is uh, the people who were really out in front of this were all the conspiracy theorists on the right wing. So if you know, you sort of go all the way past uh, what we think of as the sort of median right and get way out into the conspiracy theory world, those folks are actually, you know, like pretty much in line with the epidemiologists. So yeah, yeah, Steve Bannon was one of the first people to get to understand it. It was amazing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, along with the worldwide Jewish conspiracy, you know, like, if you can imagine that, you've got a lot of capacity there. Um, the other thing you bring up, Jim, is, of course, right, there, you know, that the, the you know, imagination is, of course, not the only quality, right? There's, you know, the extent to which, for example, you trust your reason. Um, but all of those factors have meant precisely that, you know, we're not on the same page um, collectively, and beyond that, we're not even on the same page within our social circles where we usually are, right? So, you know, in my social world, Jim, and I'm sure in yours, right, uh, you don't drive home drunk, right? That's just, that's off the table, right? We all have a general consensus about, you know, the, the right spectrum of behavior we have for driving. So that's just, that's just we, we don't even have to think about it, right? Um, 
we don't have to have that discussion. We don't have to think, we don't have to sort of judge whether or not somebody's going to be a dangerous driver, that sort of thing. Um, that's pretty much how our world usually works. But, you know, given the extent to which we're not in agreement, and maybe we ought not to be in agreement right now, because I think, you know, the, the most certain thing is the high level of uncertainty. But given we're not in agreement, how do we, how do we navigate this sort of very out of equilibrium uh, social environment? It's not something that, that we're very familiar with. It's not something that we're familiar with personally. And I would say also it's not something that the social sciences are very familiar with. Indeed. In fact, uh, you know, folks I'm talking with, we uh, are now using the model that there's been no shock like this to the United States since World War II. It's, you know, it's interesting, right? Because uh, in terms of existential threat, right, we're doing okay, right? You know, we're not going to be speaking COVID in, you know, three years. But in another sense, absolutely, it is a, it, it's, a, it's a huge social hit. And it may be more of an epistemic hit, right, than a, I don't know, ontological one. Uh, most of us are not at risk from this disease. I mean, we, we worry about it. But what we're really facing, I think, is, is a sort of dual problem. One is the uncertainty about the biology. But the other thing that I think we haven't talked as much about, but you're on this wavelength, Jim, which is wonderful, is um, we're also really uncertain about the people around us, right? Um, you know, you're, you're quarantining, I'm quarantining, you know, Carnegie Mellon is on board with this, right? So I'm not in trouble for not coming into work. In fact, I would be in trouble if I tried to come into work now. Um, but, you know, the broader world that we're sitting inside of, um, you know, there's a huge diversity of approaches. And I think most of us, you know, if we go downtown, you know, to pick up some groceries, um, we'll see a huge spectrum of beliefs about how we ought to respond. And so we're, we have an epistemic uncertainty about what's going on in someone else's head, not just what's going on, you know, with the virus itself. Absolutely. And that's, as, as I said, my single biggest unexpected learning from this is how vast uh, that cognitive model difference is between people who are sort of otherwise similar. Uh, it's like <laughs> staggering to me. To me, you know, to me uh, the evidence is just stone cold clear. If you can do it, you should absolutely isolate yourself to the maximum degree. Right. Uh, but a lot of other people just don't see it that way. And of course, part of it, I will say part of it is, you know, where you stand is, is what you see as mm -hmm. somebody, you know, in the lower end of the age danger belt. Uh, I have a different uh, risk profile than a 22 year old. Uh, right. So one should expect that, you know, assuming that they are a sociopath, at least <laughs> one should assume that they would have a different behavioral pattern than me. Uh, but I suppose that's, the part that's disturbing, the sort of implicit sociopathy, right? You say, all right, you know, I'm 23 years old and I'm a, you know, a fraternity boy jock. My chances of having a bad outcome from this are pretty damn low. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll just go and uh, hang out at the beach party and lick the eyeballs of the cheerleaders and all the things I usually do. Uh, right. But they don't uh, consider their social obligations to not transmit you know, not to make R0 two and a half instead of 1.1, 1 .1, uh, which has a gigantic uh, downstream effect on people who are more, more vulnerable. Uh, so I expect uh, casual sociopathy uh, is much higher than one might think. Well, I think this is, you know, this is, this is a kind of combination of two things, Jim, right? Um, you know, the, I mean, I think I, I, we probably saw the same video, right, of the, of the Florida bro. Uh, you know, I catch COVID, I catch COVID. Um, it's going to happen. But there's sort of, you know, there's, there's a kind of second step here. Um, I mentioned this in the paper, but, uh, you know, right when this was kicking off, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine here who teaches philosophy at Duquesne. 
And you know, I was like, look, um, in any other, you know, year, you know, any other month of the, this, in this world, if I had told you, um, hey, I read some stuff on Twitter and now I'm staying inside my house and not leaving, right? This would be a very bad sign for my mental health, right? There'd be, you know, <laughs> clearly I had made some bad judgments that day and some, you know, something had gone wrong with my family. Or you done some very bad drugs. I did some, right, exactly. Um, so, you know, all of the standard, you know, rules of thumb that we're using as a kind of check on our own thinking, right? The kind of, uh, you know, error checking we usually do, right? Well, I, I come to this conclusion, but let me just, you know, check it for sense. Um, all those sense checkers aren't working right now um, because those sense checkers operate on a background of normalcy. So, um, you know, we have to, you know, our, our ethical judgments, I suppose the right way to say it, our ethical judgments are being convolved or being stuck into a set of, you know, pretty abstract chunks of reasoning, right? Uh, reasoning about R not and exponentials. Um, whether or not the Florida bro who, uh, you know, gets on the TV and is like, I'll catch COVID, whatever, uh, whether or not that guy is, you know, actually a sociopath or not, um, it's clear that he thought the social norm was that this wasn't a problem, right? So, you know, maybe this guy also, you know, gets drunk and drives home, but he's not going to say that on public television because he knows he ought not to do that, even if he is. Um, what we can see, I think, in that, in that television interview is not just that the guy is, you know, not thinking straight and maybe kind of an ass, um, but also that the wider norm hasn't kicked in yet, simply because he felt that was okay. He had no sense that that was something he ought to be ashamed of saying. Yeah. And, and uh, to your point, you know, we're in a, in a place where the usual checksums don't apply, right? We, we're inventing them dynamically on right. the fly as our understanding of that. And that was an amazing thing from that uh, seminar yesterday. Even the greatest experts, gigantic error bars on all the main parameters, even now, right? Uh, and so uh, people who, who typically have never thought for themselves, okay, this is interesting. This is an interesting road. Maybe this is the, the real distinction. Uh, the large number of people who never think for themselves, who essentially only react to local social norms and essentially follow their nose through life, uh, if they have not yet received the signal, they're not going to do anything. On the other hand, people who have always been in the business, and I've been this way since I was an obnoxious nine-year-old, uh, who think for themselves, right? Uh, you know, my mother said, oh, yeah, from the time you were 18 months old, you were one of those, you're not the boss of me, kids, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, we've always thought for ourselves. I'm, I'm sure I know you're the same. And so we were processing the data that we got off Twitter, that we got off prowling the, uh, the web and the CDC databases endlessly, and we said, aha, this is an exponential. Aha, there are more than 400 hotspots in the United States. Aha. Uh, the testing rate is way lower than it should be. Aha. Therefore, the incident rate's at least 10x what's being reported. Aha. We're fucked, right? Uh, and some of us came to it four weeks ago, some three weeks ago, uh, but certainly two weeks ago, we were all there. Uh, but the other folks uh, who have to wait for somebody else to figure it out and for it to propagate as a social norm are going to lag. I think that's the model. What do you think of that? Well, you know, Jim, I, I'm, I'm maybe a bit like, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm a, uh, I have a maybe slightly greater confidence in my, in my fellow man in the sense that um, I think people actually do do a great deal of thinking for themselves. And I mean, you know, a lot of day-to-day -day life, absolutely, social norms um, are things, you know, you and I don't think about. We just do them, right? I, I don't have to think about, you know, how to interact with my neighbors on a regular day. 
Um, I think the average person, whoever, even if that phrase makes sense, right? We're all extraordinary, but um, you know, let's take someone who runs a small business. Um, you know, in order for that to work, it's a complicated, you know, chunk of stuff. You do have to think for yourself. Um, maybe not in a technical domain, maybe not in a mathematical domain, but you're constantly solving problems that require creative thinking. Just maybe not the creative thinking that's particularly useful uh, if you're looking at a spreadsheet of cases, let's say. So I think we shouldn't underrate the capacity of our fellow citizens for uh, being able to think and for being able to think for themselves and for you know, being able to reason. Um, the unusual thing is that I think we're asking people to reason in a domain that you and I are pretty familiar with, partly qualitative domain, um, but that they've never really had to encounter before. So I think that's really the, the, the issue here. It's not between people who think for themselves and people who don't think for themselves, um, but the kind of thinking for oneself that I think we have to do now, or at least we have to get comfortable with, is one that I think most people aren't. Uh, you see this a little bit, it's, it's funny. I was, um, you know, let's talk about great minds learning to think a different way. I've been reading the William Manchester biography of Churchill, right? So Churchill is like the least numbers guy of all time. But, you know, by the time World War II rolls around, right, this guy is, you know, he's really good at calculating tonnage, right? Um, he's learned to think about, you know, shipping in a way that before that whole crisis began, it was not something that was on his radar. So I think we're in, I think we're in partial agreement here, Jim. Um, okay, I, I think that's, I mean, a, that's probably a fairer way to do it. That, you know, the yeah. people who aren't used to thinking quantitatively don't even understand the concept of an exponential. And you know, you know, I will say that just screamed to me when I was talking to you know, friends and family, oh, there's only 13 cases here in state Y. I go, yeah, right. and, and if it doubles nine times, what do we have, right? They're, they just don't think right. that way. Uh, so you're right. It's, Probably they're, not, they're just not prepared, don't have the tools to think about exponentials and complicated scenarios like this. And then particularly if they're embedded in a place, let's say, uh, with people who are getting the broadcasts from the, uh, oh, this is not a big deal, this is just the flu right. plus, uh, then the, you know, they don't look out Absolutely. looking for signals elsewhere. Absolutely. No, I think that's dead on, Jim. I think that's pretty um, good. Uh, are you ready? To, you want to go jump out into the void a little further? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, I, uh, you know, one of my things I've been talking about on these uh, 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 extra shows is the distinction between homeostasis and hysteresis, you know, that a, co <laughs> that a complex social biological system has two tendencies when, when, when shocked. One, homeostasis, to return to its previous state. Uh, and clearly, there's a strong libido for that. And a lot of the management, and management we talked about earlier before the show about uh, the backside of the curve, a lot of it is aimed at homeostasis. On the other side, hysteresis, you know, is a physics concept. Systems that are given a shock uh, now become uh, significantly determined by the shock itself and don't tend to return to equilibrium. Uh, I suspect that uh, this post-COVID-19 world is going to be a mix of homeostasis and hysteresis. Uh, do you have some ideas on where the, uh, the system will not return to the previous state? <laughs> uh, well, okay, we're out in the void, right? Absolutely um, in the void. You're not responsible. This is not professional work. This is Jim <laughs> and Simon bullshitting. Well, so I, let, me, let me make a meta point very quickly, Jim, before I, before I you know, do the harder thing of making a point. Um, 
you know, that, that kind of question you're asking is, um, is, you know, a, a question that many people in my social world and yours too, are, I'm sure are finding, you know, fascinating, scary, and also potentially exciting. Um, and it's sort of awful to have, um, you know, any kind of positive sense um, for the crisis we're having because people are dying. Um, but there is a, this is a moment for people to think a little bit differently uh, about, you know, what kinds of equilibria we want to come out the other side being inside of. Um, you know, we came out of World War II with a set of institutions, many of which were extraordinarily functional. Um, we came out the other side with, I don't know, let's say an expanded public education system. Um, you know, we, we, we built the modern state university as part of that. Um, so no one would say World War II was a good thing, or, you know, would prefer it not to have happened. Uh, but what we did with that, uh, with some imagination, was, was pretty remarkable. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of asking the hysteresis question, and I'm also in favor of maybe asking it, uh, you know, in a positive sense uh, to say, well, you know, what do we want coming out the other side? I absolutely agree that there are huge numbers of positive possibilities. There are also some negatives, but hey, let other people dwell on the negative. Let's think about the positive one. So uh, do you have some uh, positive ideas? Let me, let, me, let, me, let me think for a second here, Jim. You know, we'll, Fair we'll, enough. Well, let me, let, me, let, me, let me kick something out there, Jim. And this is something that you know, we've, I've noticed just really clearly. Somebody said uh, um, of the, uh, all of these uh, blog posts that are coming out from corporations that have done all of this informal contact tracing. So you'll have some companies say, check it out. Look, we'll, we'll show you um, how all the guys on Florida Spring Break where they went uh, the next night, where they went the next month, and how they spread out over the country, right? So they have these wonderful kind of heat maps, right? Um, somebody pointed out, um, wow, like every company is now reframing the extent to which they've been capturing high-resolution data on our behavior as a social positive, right? So, you know, if a company, you know, two months ago had said, here's our map of where everybody is going right now, uh, we would have been horrified. Now we're sort of impressed and, you know, maybe slightly, you know, pleased that that map is there. Um, one thing that's done, I think, is, you know, really hit home for everybody in the country, uh, something that you and I have probably known for a long time, which is that there is no such thing as privacy anymore. Um, you know, we might try and, you know, edge around government restrictions. We might say, okay, we don't want the government to keep this, but, um, you know, every corporation that has any kind of social media contact, any kind of anything that runs on a smartphone is gathering so much data that, you know, your life is tracked, my life is tracked. Maybe you're, maybe not yours, Jim, maybe you're able to disconnect, but, you know, most of us, we just can't. Uh, you know, we've, we've signed some agreement, we've clicked through some agreement. Um, I think people now realize that. They realize that we just, we have no electronic privacy. Um, you might call it childhood, you know, childhood's end. Ah, I like that. I like, yeah, because, you know, I was involved in businesses that did direct mail in the 90s where you could buy for 10 cents uh, 270 data items on anybody you wanted. And so I knew in 1995 there was no privacy. Uh, but, of course, now we go even further to the dynamics of where we are at any given place and time. I mean, yeah, and, you know, what's, I mean, everything down to, you know, what's in our brain, right? Um, 
uh, one of the, you know, one of the things that hit me years ago was when I learned that, you know, if you type something in the, in the search box in Facebook, but don't click return, Facebook still captures that. Like they can see what you typed and decided not to send. Ah, interesting. Um, I did not so, know that. So, oh my God. Yeah, there you go. Right. Um, so if I type in fuck face Zuckerberg and don't hit return, yep, he gets the message. I'm going to do that. Yep. Um, we know this because there was a terribly ill-judged article by some academics who worked with Twitter who looked at the tweets that people decided not to send, right? Ah! So, uh, which we should probably have more of. Um, but so, okay, I mean, that's, that's the background here, right? Now we all know. Um, and I think there might be a really interesting question coming out the other side, which is people saying, okay, this data is here. We now, it's unavoidable that we know you haven't. Um, we also know that it can be used for good as well. Um, and we may see a, a, to me, somewhat unimaginable shift in, you know, from privacy advocates who say, you know, get out, you know, delete everything about me, not possible, um, to another sense of, well, I have this data, it belongs to me. And okay, fine, I, I want this to go here, I want this to go there, but I don't want it for that, I want it for this. Um, the sense that the data we have on ourselves is now maybe some kind of public good, a weird kind of public good that we haven't really seen before. It's, a, it's sort of a dangerous one, um, uh, powerful, something we want some people to use for some purposes, but not others. Um, so we may, uh, this may be a, a, a mark of our, I don't know, some new kind of maturity in the information age where we start to develop, we start to think really clearly, uh, not just technically, about uh, what the fact that, you know, you and I are shedding terabytes of data a day. I love it. That's a beautiful insight, one I have not heard from anybody else. Uh, and it's a classic example of hysteresis. You know, we had this, you know, this resistance around perceived privacy, even though we both know it's not true, uh, but a lot of people acted as if it was, or at least we wish we could recover it. Paradise lost. Uh, right. We've now actually seen the good that this can do, and it will you know, beg some questions. Like maybe we have, there is, a, there is this data, this dynamic movement data, but it's escrowed only to the epidemiology directorate or something, right? We know it's hugely valuable for that. But we now when we see it in operation, we know it's also hugely uh, uh, subject to abuse in all kinds of ways. So it'll make us think about this in a radically different way that is frankly more realistic than the, than the stupid dialogues back and forth. Like you say, I don't want all my data d uh, deleted, right? Wrong, not gonna happen. Right. That's yeah, a, I mean, yeah. That's a good it, one. I, have, you know, I often use a more prosaic one, which is that I suspect that business travel will never come back. Not to say it'll totally go away, but it wouldn't surprise me to find that, uh, you know, airplane business travel falls by 50% in a year or two uh, after uh, this thing is over. Uh, because and this has been a potentiality for the last 10 years, you know, since Skype, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and now Zoom and WebEx and all this stuff. This stuff's damn good and it's damn cheap. And, you know, business travel, you know, me flying to California uh, to have a two-hour business meeting with somebody and then come back three days out of my life, $2,500. Uh, waste of time, energy, and effort. We could have gotten a hell of a lot more done with two two-hour Zoom calls. But yep. we were, we were kind of locked into this signaling behavior, you know, game theoretic signaling behavior. I'm showing you respect by flying out to you and sitting down and talking to you about the business deal here. Uh, yeah. but, now, uh, but now that we do it, 
uh, by Zoom. We go, shit, this is so much more efficient. Uh, I was also talking uh, to uh, another professor at another well-known university, and he was saying some pretty heretical things. He says, uh, you know, my classes are actually going better on Zoom than they did in person. The kids are way more willing to ask questions. They seem much more engaged. Uh, and of course, I make them keep the video on so that I can tell if they're paying attention or not. Uh, I'm not sure I want to go back to live lectures. Uh, you know, it, what a radical thought that might be. You know, that's, that's interesting, Jim. I mean, it's, um, I, you know, 50% is a pretty, a, a pretty big bet. I don't know if you've uh, made some investments in airlines on the basis of it. but I've uh, voted against. I fortunately didn't have many in my portfolio, but I cleared out the little bit I had. And I've also cleared out all mid-tier hotel chains. Oh, well, okay. There you go. Um, so let me, let, me, let me follow up on this, right? That's, I mean, it's, you know, to me, it makes total sense. I, um, I love my colleagues in Europe. I love Europe. Um, you know, I was meant to fly out to give some lectures in uh, Austria. That was obviously canceled. And I was like, wait, I now have like four days um, to do something else. And, you know, I was going to give four hours of lectures, max, maybe. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty inefficient way to use time and certainly use karma. Um, but let's flip it around and say, okay, fine. We, we, we stop all of our useless travel. So what happens instead? Right. What, what do we do with, you know, what does the, you know, frequent flyer gang do with all that spare time? What, what do we do if we're not, you know, flying to give talks every month or flying for business meetings every month? What, what do we do with all that time? That's a great question. Hopefully we use it to improve the world or improve our business or improve our research or improve our marriages. Uh, but on the other hand, we might uh, spend it smoking dope and playing video games. It's up to us. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, there is, I, I, you know, the, I think the Zoom, I don't know, you know, the Zoom era is, I mean, from the point of view of an educator, um, you can run a seminar on a computer and honestly, you're not going to miss much. Um, you know, I used to take classes at St. John's back in Santa Fe, which I love. It's, you know, that's, you, you sit in a seminar for three hours, you focus intently, but, um, you know, it's not like we're not touching each other. We're just sitting in chairs around a table. There's, again, with a, you know, a slightly better interface, I'm not sure we needed to be there in person. Um, but then what does that do, Jeremy? I mean, Christ, what are we going to do with all the real estate that's owned by the universities then? Yeah, make it to the homeless shelters. <laughs> really fancy, really fancy, expensive ones that have banging pipes, right? <laughs> right yeah, some old, yeah, some old radiators in Harvard Yard. Exactly. I, uh, yeah. I think these are examples of potential hysteresis that things could change in a fairly major way. Because we think about these fancy universities that we uh, a lot of us went to, uh, you know, they're, they're now what they what the hell they cost. $250,000, $300,000 a year for a, a four-year undergraduate degree? What the fuck, right? Uh, maybe this will also provide a way to rethink all of that. So, okay. One thing I would predict is Harvard's, you know, tuition will not drop. Okay, that's Harvard, Harvard won't, but, I, you know, it's always been, where on the curve can you get away with hosing people so that you can build up a $20 billion endowment, right? And it falls off pretty quickly. But, you know, today it's like 100 places that can fuck you good. Uh, maybe it's only 20 places that can fuck you good uh, in the, in the post-crisis world. But so then, okay. I mean, if you, if you were to play that out, Jim, right, you know, a major socialization for whatever, the middle class and up, right, is their four years drinking at a university. So if that's now happening online, um, 
you know, it's potential. It's, it's possible that you've decoupled your educational experience from your social experience, that your social world and your educational world may actually become very different. Um, yeah. You know, that's a, you know, that's something that affects a small, you know, fraction of the country. I don't know how many people go to a four-year college in the U.S. these days. It's about 30, uh, uh, about 30% end up with a BS degree by the time they're 30, 35%, okay. something like Got that. It. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the sort of four-year college experience from the, from the movies is becoming increasingly rare. Yeah. And, and um, also keep in mind that so-called elite colleges, which goes, yeah. you know, including the top, you know, Mich University of Michigan, University yeah, of right. Indiana, top research, yeah. Yeah, university, research universities, is only 10% of the BAs. So we're talking 3.5% of uh, Americans uh, have a four-year degree from a, uh, uh, you know, a tier one research university. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's, gosh, I mean, those are, I mean, those are, you know, maybe I think, Jim, one of the, you know, one of the things we need in those cases is, you know, more novelists to tell that story because, that's a, you know, kind of wargaming the outcome of, a, you know, a dramatic shift in how we produce the elites, right? No longer sitting on a campus. Um, that's, that's a surprising shift to me. I don't even know how to think about it. Yeah, that's a cool uh, one. Well, well, Simon, we're just about out of time here. We oh, are, I am, I, am, yeah. I am dedicated to keeping these things short. Do you have any final thoughts or do you want to just wrap it? <laughs> uh, you've given me a lot to think about, Jim, and uh, uh, I really appreciate the time to just do a little imagination in the morning. So thank you. As always with Simon, it was interesting. Uh, one of my very favorite people. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.